Chapters twenty nine and thirty of Miss Ashton's New Pupil by Mrs. S. S. Robbins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Abigail Rasmussen in January two thousand and twelve. Chapter twenty nine Women's Work. The Christmas holidays being over, the young ladies returned slowly, and many of them reluctantly to the school. A few left for good some of them on their own account, some at the request of the principal. New pupils took their places, and almost at once the regular routine of work began. Miss Ashton, in one of her short morning talks, told them, while the past term had been in many respects a satisfactory one, there had been several occurrences which she should be sorry to see repeated. It would not be necessary for her to enumerate them. They were well known to the old pupils, and for the new ones— she sincerely hoped there would be no occasion for them even to hear of them. There were now some important things upon strict attendance to which she should insist during the remainder of the year. One was a more honest observance of the study hours, another less gossip. Perhaps she should be better understood if she said a higher tone of social intercourse. A thing never to be forgotten was that the school life was a preparation for the longer one beyond, and that a preparation for the one that never ends. Sometimes, she said, dropping into that hushed tone which every girl in the remotest seat from her desk heard so easily, I think our lives are but the school in which we all have set lessons to learn, set tasks to perform, and our wise teacher, so patient, so gentle, so loving with us, when the great examination day comes, will hold us strictly accountable for every slighted lesson, for every neglected duty. If I could only impress upon you today how vitally important here and hereafter the faithful discharge of even your smallest duties may be to you, I should know that when our year together is over, and I part from many of you for the last time, I should meet you again as crowns of my rejoicing. I need hardly say— certainly not to the more intelligent, who would naturally gather information of this kind, how varied and important a woman's work in life has grown to be. You are all more or less familiar with the fact that we have now entrance into the best colleges, both here and abroad. You know how we are educated for every profession, and to what eminence many of us have climbed. You understand fully that there is not a position in the literary, business, mechanical, or art world in which today a woman may not be found working successfully. You know, too, that where prizes have been offered in academical institutions, no matter for what object, it is by no means an uncommon thing for it to be awarded to a girl. Last week a class of fourteen women were graduated from the law department of the University of the City of New York, it is said to be the first law class exclusively of women that has ever been graduated. Two female medical graduates have been appointed house surgeons at two English hospitals. A society has been incorporated in New York entitled the Colonial Dames of America and to be located in New York City. Its objects are set forth to be to collect manuscripts, traditions, relics, and mementos of bygone days for preservation to commemorate the history and success of the American Revolution, and consequent birth of the Republic of the United States, to diffuse healthful and intelligent information with regard to American history, and tending to create a popular interest therein, and to inspire patriotism and love of country, 
to promote social interest and fellowship among its members, and to inculcate among the young the obligations of patriotism and reverence for the founders of American constitutional liberty. A number of prominent ladies are included in the list of officers. In this connection I will read you a short article I found in my morning paper, and here, let me say, there is not a girl in the school who should not, in some way, manage to spend a half-hour every day in looking over a newspaper. I have heard intelligent gentlemen complain of the ignorance of women about the ordinary public life. They will talk to you, they say, about housekeeping and servants. They grow eloquent over their children and sometimes their husbands, but take them out of the region of home, and they are dull company. The exceptions of those who are up in the literary, political, scientific, and socialistic world is infinitely small, and all, all because they will not take the trouble to make themselves intelligent on the great questions of the day by reading newspapers. To go on, however, with what women are doing. The new women's propylium in Indianapolis, Indiana, is now completed, and was dedicated January 27th. This building bears the distinction of being the first one erected by women not associated as a club of society. Primarily, its use is for purely business purposes, and secondly, with an educational object in view. Six or seven women, with Mrs. May Wright Sewell at the head, have raised the money and carried out the project. It seemed at first to the public generally like a wild scheme, but the women who had the matter in hand knew just what they wanted, and made every effort to carry out their plans successfully. The board of managers is made up of fifteen women. Mrs. Sewell says, The building of the propylium has been to all of us a valuable experience. We have been obliged to meet businessmen, and to familiarize ourselves with business methods, and have thus acquired an educational unusual to women. The lot has a frontage of seventy-five feet, and a depth of sixty-seven feet. The buildings contain twenty-one rooms, there being two stories above an English basement. The lot cost five thousand five hundred, and the building complete twenty-two thousand five hundred, making a total of twenty-eight thousand, and two thousand has been put into the furniture. The front of the propylium is of ashlar and rock-face work, and it is pronounced a very beautiful structure. The women take special pride in the kitchen, which is complete in every respect. In the front basement are two sets of doctors, offices, both of which were rented long ago, one set to Dr. Maria Gates and the other to Dr. Mary Smith. Dr. Gates is a graduate of the Chicago Medical College and Dr. Smith of the Michigan University. The latter is physician at the female prison and reformatory. The East Parlor is rented by the Women's Club, the Matinee Musical, the Indianapolis Art Association, and the Contemporary Club, each of which has arranged to meet on such occasions that they will not interfere with each other. The West Parlor is rented for physical culture classes, and to the Christian scientists for their Sunday meetings. The Assembly Hall will be for rent for entertainments. This is interesting as showing what an active, intelligent set of women have done. Perhaps Sunday I shall be receiving newspaper notices of even more important and successful work accomplished by some of my pupils. Here is an interesting notice of women as inventors. Within the last century, women have entered for the first time in the history of the world as competitors with men in the field of original contrivances. In the last two years and a half, they have secured from the government exclusive rights in 500 machines and other devices. In the line of machinery, pure and simple, the patent office reports show they have exhibited great inventive capacity. Among remarkable patents of theirs are patents for electrical lighting, noiseless elevated roads, 
apparatus for raising sunken vessels, sewing-machine motors, screw propellers, agricultural tools, spinning machines, locomotive wheels, burglar alarms. Quite a sensation has been caused among the clerks in the New York Post Office by the entrance of seven young women into the money-order department as clerks during the last month. The girls obtained their positions by surpassing their male competitors at the civil service examination, and will receive the same pay as male clerks. Here is another that will interest the ambitiously literary among you. Miss Kingsley, daughter of Charles Kingsley, has been awarded the decoration of the French academic palms with the grade of Officer of the Academy for her valuable writings upon French art. There seems, as you will notice from what I have read you, no bounds to what we women not only can do, but in which our success is generously allowed and honorably mentioned, but there are several things to which I may as well call your attention here. There is not now, there never has been, an honorable achievement, but it has been gained by steady, persevering effort. I think I could pick out from among the young ladies before me those who in the future will be able to hold positions of trust and usefulness, perhaps renown. They are the girls who are true, honest workers, day in and day out, week in and week out. This honest work never has been, never will be, done where time is frittered away, where rules are broken, where those numberless little deceits which I am grieved to say many a girl, who should be far above them sometimes practice. It requires a noble character to do noble work." I am desirous, particularly so, to impress upon you all today, as it is the beginning of our longest, hardest, and most important term of the year, the necessity for every one of you individually doing her best as a scholar, as a lady, and let me add, what I wish I could feel sure you would strive for beyond all other claims, as a Christian. A true Christian is as good a scholar as her natural abilities allow. A lady she must be everywhere and at every time. In closing, I have one request to make of you. You will see, while it does not seem to bear immediately upon what I have been saying, there is a close connection. I want to turn your attention, especially to the women's work in this nineteenth century. When you learn in a more extended manner than I have been able to give you this morning what they have done, what they are doing, and what they expect to do, you will realize more fully your share in the life before you. In order that you may do this, at some not distant time, we will all meet in the parlor, and I shall expect every one of you to bring to me some account of this work. From two hundred of you we ought to gather enough to make us not only proud of being women, but ambitious to be among the leaders of our sex. Then she dismissed the school. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 Deceit Miss Ashton's talk had an excellent influence upon the school. Even the wealthy girls felt there was something worth living for, but society and fashion. A large proportion of the pupils were from families in moderate circumstances. To them, avenues of access to power and influence were opened. To the poor, of whom there were not a few, help in its best sense was offered in ways that faithful diligence would make their own. In just so far as Miss Ashton had made these two things, faithfulness and diligence, the groundwork of all success, she had given the true character to her school, and as the work of the term began with this demand upon the attention of the pupils, there was a fair prospect of its being the best of the year. The holidays had come and gone. 
not a room in the large building but bore evidence of its wealth and Christmas gifts. New books covered many of the girls' tables. New pictures hung on their walls. Chairs, old and faded, blossomed into new life with their headrests, their pretty pillows and elaborate scarfs. Ribbons of all colors decked lounges, tables, curtains. Pen wipers lay gracefully by the side of elegant inkstands. Perfume bottles stood on etagères, while the numbers of hand-painted toilet articles, articles to be used in spreads, bric-a-brac of all kinds and descriptions, it would have been hard to number. Pretty, tasteful surroundings are as much a part of a girl's true education as the severe curriculum that is offered to her in her studies, and Miss Ashton gave the influences of these Christmas gifts their full value when she weighed the harder work for the teachers which the vacation always brought. To be sure, there came a time at the beginning of the term when the unwise parents were responsible for much bad work. Those of their children who had come back with boxes filled with Christmas luxuries, candies, pies, cakes, boxes of preserved fruits, nuts, raisins, and whatever would tempt them to eat out of time and place, had little chance to do well in the recitation room until these were disposed of. In truth, even more difficult, more of a hindrance in her school discipline, Miss Ashton often found the parents than their children. She was sometimes obliged to say, I could have done something with that girl if her mother had let her alone. One fact had established itself in her experience, that almost every girl committed to her care had, in the home estimation of her character, traits which demanded in their treatment different discipline from that given to any of the others. She could have employed a secretary with profit, simply to answer letters relating to these prodigies. Nine out of ten proved to be only girls of the most common stamp, both for intellect and character. Marion had spent her vacation time in a profitable manner. As mathematics was her most difficult study, so she had given her attention almost entirely to it, and even Miss Palmer, who was never good-natured when a pupil was advanced into one of her classes, and by so doing made her extra work, was obliged to confess she was now among her best scholars. Thus encouraged, Marion received an impetus in all of her other studies, and of course, as good scholarship always will, this added to the influence which her sterling moral worth and kindly ways had already given her. There was one dunce in her mathematical class who gave her great annoyance. It was Carrie Smith, a southern girl into whose dull head no figures ever penetrated. There was something really pitiable as she sat, book in hand, trying to puzzle out the simplest problem, and Marian often helped her, until Miss Palmer prohibited it. "'I will not allow it,' she said decidedly. "'If Carrie cannot get her own lessons, we ought to know it, and to treat her accordingly. Whatever assistance she needs, I prefer to give her myself.' Marion obeyed, and Carrie cried, but the consequences followed at once. Carrie soon learned to copy from Marion's slate whatever she needed, and as Marion sat next her in the class, this was an easy thing to do, and as Miss Palmer wisely seldom asked Carrie any but the simplest questions, well knowing how useless any others would be, she escaped detection until one day, grown bolder by her escapes, she copied from Marion more openly, Marion seeing her. That this might have happened once, but never would again, Marion felt quite sure. But what was her dismay when she saw it continue day after day? 
she was ashamed to let Carrie know of her discovery, as many another noble girl had been under similar circumstances. But she knew well that it could not be allowed, and that to pretend ignorance of the fact was wrong. She moved her seat, but after staring at her blankly out of her dull eyes, Carrie moved hers to her side, and the class all laughed at this demonstration of affection. But Miss Palmer, who had taught long enough to know that it might mean something but affection, watched them. She had not long to do so before she discovered Carrie's trick, Marion's knowledge of it, and her embarrassment. After recitation she told them to remain, and when they were alone together she said, "'Marion Park, how long have you known that Carrie Smith copied her sums off your slate?' Poor Marion! She looked at Miss Palmer, then at Carrie. The color came into her face and the tears into her eyes, but she did not answer a word. Miss Palmer repeated her question with much asperity. Still no answer, but two large tears on Marion's cheeks. "'You do not choose to answer me,' a little more gently now. "'I shall report your behavior to Miss Ashton. "'Carrie Smith, how long have you been copying Marion's sums instead of doing your own?' "'I've—I've never copied them, Miss Palmer,' said Carrie, looking Miss Palmer boldly in the face. "'Carrie Smith, I saw you do so.' "'I—I never did. Never, Miss Palmer. Never.' "'Go to your room, Carrie Smith. I am not surprised at your readiness to tell a falsehood. You have been acting one for weeks, and they are all the same, the acted and the spoken in God's sight. Go to your room and pray. Ask God to forgive you.' Then she opened a Bible which lay on a table near her, and in very solemn tones read these words. "'But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable and murderers,' glancing off now in a threatening manner at Carrie, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Carrie turned very pale. If Miss Palmer had asked her for the truth again, she would have told it, but she did not. She only motioned the girls from the room, and went herself to Miss Ashton. Incidents similar to this were not unusual in the school, and Miss Ashton always considered them the most painful and troublesome to deal with. She waited a day or two before taking any notice of it. Then she sent for Marion, who went to her room with fear and trembling. "'Marion,' said Miss Ashton, beckoning her to come and sit on the sofa beside her, "'I am very sorry on your account that this has happened. It would have been better if you had told Miss Palmer as soon as you knew what Carrie was doing.' better for her, for of course she was deceiving, and we know what that means. Better for Miss Palmer, for she could form no just estimate of Carrie's scholarship, for which she is responsible, and better for you, because in a certain way it made you a partaker in the deception. Oh, Miss Ashton, I could not tell on her. I could not, I could not, exclaimed Marion. I understand you perfectly, said wise Miss Ashton. I only want you to see the situation as it is. If you had thought of it, you might have come to me. Everything of that kind I should know. Then your responsibility would have ceased, and without making a class matter of it, I could have influenced Carrie to do right. Now if you fully understand me, run back to your lessons. Only remember, in whatever perplexity for the future you find yourself, I am the house-mother, and you are all my children. 
"'You would not have hesitated to tell your mother "'if you had found any of your brothers or sisters doing wrong, should you?' "'No, ma'am. I should have gone to her at once.' "'And not felt that you were a tell-tale?' "'Not for a moment.' "'Just so. Then it is here. We are all one family, "'and there is nothing mean in reporting to me more than to a mother. "'It's the motive that prompts the telling that gives it its moral character.' It is the noblest that can act wisely and escape the odium of tell-tales. And, my dear Marion, I feel quite sure that for the future I can trust you. Marion went away with a light heart. Trust me, of course she can, she said to herself, but I am so sorry for Carrie Smith. Carrie, in truth, even after listening to the terrible denunciations Miss Palmer had read to her, was to be pitied for her moral as well as mental dullness. She went through the ordeal of her talk with Miss Ashton with far less feeling than Marion had shown, and the only punishment she minded was being put back into the class of beginners and being told that the next time she was found doing anything of the kind and told a falsehood about it, she would be expelled from the school. This, on the whole, she would have liked, for study was detestable to her, and there was nothing but the ambition of her mother that made it seem necessary in her home surroundings. Both Miss Palmer and Marion were delighted to have her leave the class. Marion kindly kept the reason for her having done so to herself, though many inquiries were made of her by the other scholars. End of chapter 30